0: To Inclusionism is 5:34, almost 5:35 in the PM. I'm your host, James Felton Keith. Uh, welcome to my church. We're here um, in Harlem, another Sunday with another special guest that we can get uh, wildly nerdy with. Uh, here at Inclusionism, we normally talk about exclusion and how we remedy the the ills of exclusion. Uh, This is where we like to say individuals are at their best when they identify with a community, and communities are only at their best when they identify all of their individuals. Uh, Today, we have Christopher Bocafusco. He is a co-author of Happiness in Law, which uh, came out on Chicago Press back in 2015. Uh, I just read it uh, about a week ago, and I think it's a, a fascinating book. Um, well, as the title says, that correlates or connects happiness and law. Chris, thanks for joining us.
1: I'm delighted to be here, James. Thanks so much.
0: Um, let's start with, I think, the obvious. What does happiness have to do with the law? So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that I Correct. feel guilty asking because I feel like I've tumbled down these rabbit holes a bit. But, um, but yeah, let's have at it. What... Um, what does happiness do with law? Where were you all at when you were thinking
1: this is what we need to write? Yeah, this is the the, the standard first question uh, I think that anyone faces <laughs> yeah. when like, they even what? look at the title of the book. And you know, yeah. I teach uh, first year torts at Cardozo Law School uh, here in New York, and my students like. You know happiness does not seem like exactly the first thing on their mind they when say you, that uh well, you know they're they're working on they a lot of things there. they're pretty stressed right they've got a lot of things going on. They took their midterm this week sure uh, so so you know if you ask them about happiness in the law, you get some uh, some quizzical <laughs> right, uh, they're looks they're uh, right now. these are
0: first year these are first year law students exactly or, right, okay, right you're at the law school which is which is here in New York are you? You're in New York. Where are you? I am. Yeah. Where are you coming from uh, the, today? Uh, far, I live far in Murray. away.
1: No, I live in Murray Hill.
0: Okay. Uh, Murray Hill. And uh, right.
1: yeah, the law school is at 12th Street and Fifth Avenue. That's so, not far. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, so, so excited to be here. I know Yeshiva has places all over the city. We sure so. do. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah. So the idea is that the law. Um, most of the time, this may seem surprising, but most of the time is trying to make people's lives better off. Mm. Uh, and so um, so when we think about what the law is doing yeah. with respect to criminal law, mm. civil law, intellectual property, tax law, environmental law, whatever it is, um, the whole goal of most of the, or not the whole goal, but one of the principal yeah. goals of each of those areas of the law is to make people's lives better. Sure. And so... Um, We wanted to try to think about uh, how we might do that, how we might understand what it really means to make people's lives better off. And and what the book does is it incorporates um, new research in hedonic psychology or the psychology of happiness uh, to try to understand uh, what it means to, to make people better off. Yeah.
0: No. Um. The beginning of the book is what well, really fascinating to me. So, like as the engineering guy, right. um, I'm always looking at how do we quantify all of the, the previously thought to be unquantifiable, the abstract, you name it. And you really, you know, the three of you really buck the idea in here that uh, happiness can't be defined, which I think is right. uh, is common speech, right. at this at this point in our in our history. And you really make the sort of you, I think, go through a bit of a timeline of how like the hedonic is something that has been you know endeavored to be quantified at least by psychologists. Right. And so, as that is the case, I mean, were you all? I mean, there are a lot of so. As I read the book, I didn't read all the references to the (laughs) book. So you're referencing like a lot of you know, psych research in general Mm -hmm. and. And then what, like building contract law out of that? The law is bigger than contract. All of the law,
1: law eventually. Um, yeah. But but right. So so as you say, um, the the notion. So so the fundamental premise of the book is that yeah. happiness can be subject to quantification mm. and measurement, mm. uh, and that we can use that measurement when we are um, making law. Uh, and and this was this was a plausible idea in the 19th century uh, mm. and so, so Je- century. yeah so Jeremy Bentham uh, the founder of utilitarianism the kind of science of utility and economics sure. and the like um, imagined the possibility that we could measure directly the kind of pleasures and pains of human beings to understand how happy they were hmm. um, and but by the early 20th century this seemed impossible it seemed that happiness was merely an internal mental state that social scientists would never be able to accurately measure, uh, that what made you happy would be different from me, right? Sure. That when you said you were so happy, right, how would we compare that to when I said I was so happy? Right. And so what happened was um, social scientists instead decided to rely not on how happy we feel, yeah. but on our behaviors. They instead looked, at, looked for uh, predictable measures of what we chose The idea being that if you choose one thing over another, your choice of that thing, right? You choose this morning to eat a bagel rather than a muffin, Hmm. right? Your choice of bagel versus muffin must mean that bagels make you happier than muffins do, sure. right? Why else would you choose them? Uh, and so much of the 20th century then from economics and law and yeah. psychology was based on the notion that happiness wasn't measurable, hmm. that the only thing that was measurable were, were people's decisions, their preferences, hmm. uh, and that we could instead um, figure out how happy people were based on how many of their preferences they could satisfy, hmm. uh, which typically meant um how much money they had Uh, and so many of these things then get cashed out in terms of literally cashed out uh in terms of (laughs) of wealth uh and so um so 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 our our move in the book is to is to begin to suggest that that's not true that that uh, the fundamental premise of of this this notion that all that can really be measured is what people choose is is flawed
0: I do think that a lot of economists are thinking like that in general. Um, yeah, even, well, even you know, when I read, I guess you could call it philosophy or you know the philosophy of economics. Even when I think about, it, I can't remember his name right now, but the guy who wrote um, Homo Sapiens, Homo Deus, and uh, what he just wrote it. Oh no! That doesn't know it. No, oh, you never heard. <laughs> no. So it's an interesting book, at least book I think is pretty interesting, uh, called Homo Deus. And the last chapter of that book, or the 11th chapter of that book, I remember most, is called Dataism. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy's name is Yuval something or another, Israeli guy. Oh, yes. You know, yeah, yeah, he tri- been, yeah. he's yeah, yeah. sort of famous now. And um, he really talks about sort of dataism as this method, this mechanism for decision making, as if sort of the the essence of life is is or the purpose of all of our toiling is mm-hmm. decision making and acknowledges also that it has no uh regard for human value or intrinsic value or suggested uh, intrinsic value and he anyway, he further tumbles down this rabbit hole of decision making like mm-hmm. you know if if we are here to and it is a big if but you know he goes along that line i think a lot of people right now at least in the in the professional spaces in corporate spaces are mostly trying to satisfy the distribution of the most effe- effective and or efficient decision making mm-hmm. which may not render real happiness right and so anyway that that said because I used to be sort of one of those guys. Mm-hmm. I used to think we could sort of technologize our way out of all problems. That was maybe ten years ago. I was a bit more naive uh, than I am now, and hopefully I'll be a bit better ten years from now. One hopes. Yeah, and yeah. I, always... I can just hope. Yep. But um, but yeah, at that time I was trying to sort of you know solve the sort of supply demand problem of mm-hmm. of decision making. But um, since you all have moved from the book, what are you? so you, we were talking a bit earlier, but you're you're publishing new stuff mm-hmm. along these lines around establishing uh what what happiness is or or the distribution of happiness
1: right so trying or to or figure out like how that. the law can yeah uh can can solve fundamental problems uh, by understanding what really makes people's lives go better. Uh, And so what we rely on here is um, the notion that you can actually measure how happy people are. Uh, And the way to do that is shockingly simple. Hmm. You ask them so well, uh so, yeah, you
0: got into that a bit here but yeah okay
1: so, uh, so you, I, ask you ask them you ask them and mm-hmm. so so i can ask you now yeah um you know james on a scale of one to seven oh, no, this is risky uh, yeah sure honest, you don't have to say that no let's go in no, I'll, no, I'll go there. You know, uh, on a scale of one to seven <laughs> um how satisfied are you with how your life is going these days and again, you don't have to, right, but, but but or I can ask you in a... I'd love
0: to tumble down there, but I don't know. I'm mm. at a
1: good five. You're five, I'm okay. at a good five. Good. Right. If seven is good, seven is seven best. Seven is the best, right. Uh, psychologists love sevens for some reason. They do? Uh, yeah, they like... Because like, it's like a number of completion? Yeah, scales that aren't too big, scales that aren't too small, seven's kind of like, you know, the right size. It seems um, very Abrahamic, but yeah. Yes. So, um, so right, so, so, so and uh, right, and yeah. so we might ask you a bunch of questions like this, mm. and so we can ask you that today, we can ask you that again six months from now, a year from now, a year and a half after continuing on and, and then we can watch what happens to the rest of your life, sure. right? We can look at what happens when you get a job sure. or when you lose a job, sure. when you get married, when you get divorced, when you get ill, yeah. when you get healthy, yeah. all sorts of things like that. And then we can begin to track how your happiness goes up and down yeah. through a bunch of these different states. And what we can eventually begin to do is start to measure how happy or sad any given thing is likely to make people. Um, and we can figure out how, how, how serious it is. Right. Uh, sure and, and how that, long it yeah. lasts. Uh, okay. and, um, and this is really powerful data that can, that can, can help us understand a lot about how the world works.
0: Uh, so, okay. So you make me think about maybe one of my favorite. So my, my career, as I moved away from my, um, sort of engineering background, and economics background, when I, started working i started working in uh i was a mechanical engineer for a while but i sent, spent a big chunk in the middle of my career in what we call corporate change management mm-hmm. and our real discipline was what we called uh corporate ethnography or studying the culture of these right. organizations we would try to make it sexy for from a sales standpoint and sure. call it uh ethnography of tech because we right. were really looking at how orgs change when we implemented some tech okay But we're really just, it was standard, you know, ethnographic study. We're pulling data from people. But your comments around, you just asked them, make me think about, uh, you know, one of my favorite people, I didn't know her directly, but, you know, we read a bunch of her quotes. Uh, She's an ethnographer. And for anyone who's not familiar, ethnography is sort of an anthropological term for the study of culture. And Margaret Mead Mm -hmm. comes to mind. And she had this really famous quote. I'm probably going to screw it up slightly. But it said uh, what people say, what people do, and what people say they do Mm -hmm. are three completely different things. And I think about sort of merging into the the latter part of my career uh, in data science and definitely taking this sort of panel data, Mm -hmm. is what we call in some companies, which would be survey data. Precisely. But then pairing it with, I guess, information that we didn't think people would divulged to us. Like, how happy are they really? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's difficult. It's slightly problematic because it means that we're assigning value to choices that they may make that we may not fully understand. Mm -hmm. But we still do it. We still do it anyway.
1: Um, Turns out that people are very willing to tell you how happy they are. right? So the nice thing about this question is that it's it's pretty imminently understandable. Sure, sure. Um, you know it's not it's not perfectly understandable. Sure, it's, it can be a complicated problem, especially the way I asked it there. Sure, sure. Right sure. when I asked you, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole? I was like, mm, right, you, yeah. probably, you probably like thought about you know your job, your relationships, yeah. right, your family life, you know your aspirations. So it's not a perfectly easy question. Sure. I could ask you an easier question, like how happy are you right now? Right, and that's yeah. one that you can just like pretty quickly tell by introspection. Um, but in in these cases, right, right. So, right. You know, uh, and, and in these cases we could then use that data Hmm. and start to figure out what's going on in your life and how it affects you. But then more importantly for, for us and our project in the book, um, start to figure out how the law affects those things. Right. So, so when the law say adopts a change, when we're contemplating, um, some administrative regulation, that's going to say, um, reduce uh reduce deaths that are going to be associated with you know some pollutant coming out of a factory right and so one. we're going to like yeah. regulate this factory now yeah uh and so that means fewer people are going to get ill fewer people are going to get uh, are going to die yeah. um but maybe the prices of goods made by the factory will go up yeah. maybe some people will get unemployed because of that right what the law tries to do is to balance those it goes through this Cost-benefit analysis, where it compares the, the, the costs, you know, yeah. the, the loss of jobs and the increased price to the, to the benefits, you know, sure. number of people saved, number of species saved, things like that. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, yeah. the law has quantified all those things. It's turned them all into dollars and cents uh, in a monetary fashion. Sure. And our strategy instead is to say, no, we can actually measure how happy you will be Right. Right. How many, how many actually like, yeah. yeah, When we think about the benefits, we think about like now a hundred people will not be sick. Sure. You know, a thousand people won't get cancer. Right. What does that mean in a, in a, in a true sense, rather than like, how many dollars would they spend to avoid cancer, right? Like, that's, that to us is, a, like, a really hard question to answer. Right. And not I, one the law is very good at.
0: No, 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 you're
1: right. We are you're right. Well, yeah, right. You all are... Is everyone lawyers? All we three all, of you? Yes, all three of us. Okay. Uh, my, co- just, uh, my co-hosts are, are John Bronstein at uh, Loyola University Chicago yep. and Jonathan Maser at the University of Chicago Law Shout
0: school. out to the Johns. Absolutely. J-O-H-N <laughs> and J-O-N, two different types, two totally different types of Johns. <laughs> exactly. One's tall, one's... Anyway. Um, I, and
1: my middle <laughs> initial is John as well. There we, so, so so the
0: three Johns, <laughs> <Effectively>. um, <laughs> all of these lawyers, but you, you're right, I think uh, economists will go a different way and they try to put a price on it. It's so, yeah, difficult. Um, I have run into a lot of economist lawyer duos lately, sort of trying to tackle socio political issues. Um, you know, that I think are interesting. Uh, I think uh, a, a friend of mine, Glenn Weil, who's an mm-hmm. economist, just wrote an interesting book with uh, Eric Posner, who's out of Chicago. Glenn was at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Eric was over there in Shy town where where you were. Right. And um, Jonathan
1: Macer and uh, yeah. Eric Posner write together a lot. Oh, they do. Oh, so problems. you know
0: that, right. So it's, <laughs> yes. right, one big frat. <laughs> right. I didn't know that they knew each other. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like some of the stuff that uh, Eric and, and Glenn have done. Uh, well, with regards to markets in general, Mm -hmm. but how to make them, uh, I guess, more equitable and more ethical Mm -hmm. not just sort of laissez-faire run amok. And, you know, what they think about the distribution of goods, whether it be voting or capital, things they've done in quadratic voting. Also, like, you know, concepts that they play with, like our data as labor, um, which... I think can go in a lot of different directions based on how people see information about themselves. But um, I like that they're playing in the sandbox together right. in and, general. And
1: we're we're trying to do some of the same yeah. sorts of things, right? Trying to push beyond yeah. right mere monetized uh, economic approaches to thinking about value yeah. uh, and to understand. Because it turns out when when you when you ask people these happiness questions, you get some sure. pretty surprising results. You do, uh, yeah. So it it turns out that. Um, Although, in general, being richer makes you happier than being poor, which is good.
0: Sure. Uh, it doesn't yeah.
1: make you nearly as happy as you might think. Right. Uh, right. And so, yeah. so, so there are big returns, much, more, much greater increases in happiness hmm. between like absolute dire poverty and about you know, sure. twice the poverty line. Sure. But about at that point, things flatten out really substantially. So that the difference between $50,000 a year and $100,000 a year sure. is pretty small. Right, in terms of happiness. The difference in $100,000 a year and a million dollars a year? is going to say, what Pretty about? small. Really? Right? Yeah, right? That's it, a big jump be, for but people would assume. That's but the point, right? Yeah. And people people put enormous amounts of effort. If you, if you just look at what they choose to do, yeah. they put enormous amounts of effort into these sorts of things. They will but over. it turns out they adapt very quickly, right? Uh, and so they buy the new TV, right? The new TV is six inches bigger than their old TV. Oh, yeah. We, as we, soon as you get 14, home, years, yeah. you're watching the same. You only watch it one TV, TV at a time right yeah. uh, and so and so people make a bunch of other things right so people tend to mm. um, people tend to 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 adapt to a lot of things in life in ways that they don't anticipate that they will both mm. good things like increases in money sure. but also bad things uh, so it turns out lots of the um, lots of negative health states sure. uh, have been shown to be much more adaptable than people anticipate, so so if I ask you now, yeah right, um, how do you think your life would go if you became a paraplegic, yeah, yeah right, you would probably say something like it would be really, really bad, yeah, and that would, that bad feeling would last a really long time, sure, uh, and the answer is it would be bad, yeah, just not nearly as bad as you as would you think. think it is, yeah. uh, and it wouldn't last nearly as long as you think it would be, hmm. and how do we know that well we've studied people who have with become paraplegia and yeah. they then tell us well you know it's bad it's just not as bad as these healthy people think because the healthy people focus on the change right they focus on the like Change is hard, right. and and or change and, management exactly, and so and and they focus and they focus on like all the things that are going to be that are going to be different, yeah. right? I won't be able to run, right? Uh, and they don't focus on all the things that will be the same. That's like, immediately what I think I could about, still yeah. like eat and drink with my family, and yeah. it turns out running's not a lot of fun. Eating and drinking with <laughs> your family not, is. You're right. It's not a lot of fun, <laughs> right? Running is mostly. Pure I run pain. as a punishment, right. I sort of keep Precisely. myself in line. Exactly. Someone's like,
0: "You're a runner. You like it?" I was like, "I don't know that I like it." Exactly. i sort of beat uh, myself but up. You know, eating yeah. and drinking
1: with your family and friends—something yeah. you may still be able to do. I probably is, drink more. Is enormously pleasurable in a fun way. Uh, and so, uh, so, so, because yeah. people make all of these mistakes, yeah. uh, systematic, predictable mistakes, mm. their preferences about things, right, their choices are not really good indications of what makes their lives happier. Mm. Uh, and so, this—and we can only learn that by actually beginning to ask these questions about people Um, and so then we start to now realize like how people's lives change in response to into a a variety of different objective mental states like getting more money or losing money becoming healthier or not
0: it's i i didn't know that yeah well the number between 50 and 100 you know was Mm -hmm. a bit of a that there wasn't that big of a jump and then 100 to a million because in all of my circles well anyway i guess you all picked these numbers you know haven't lived a bit and knowing that you know people who make less than 100k at least where I'm from they all go you know you get a 100 that number mm-hmm. they're like you know I'm I'm doing something and then the next group is like you know if I could just I don't know if they go directly to a million but you know 250 right. 500 but that's a big it's a big number and
1: it turns out yeah. you know the 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 general numbers in your life uh are will will tend to be fairly stable over a long period of time uh, they they do move right sure. um, you know so like I said if you become a millionaire you'll be better off than if you're making $50,000. Definitely. Uh, but just probably um, less than you think. Um, uh, yeah, you probably have a little bit less to worry
0: about. You know, Maybe if you don't hoard all the dough, you may get an assistant who can alleviate some of the mundane tasks uh, of sure. living. <laughs> dry cleaning and the
1: like. Yeah. Uh, oh it's right.
0: uh. funny you say that. <laughs> I was scared to go to the dry cleaner the other day because I didn't want to walk all the way down to my bank to get cash. My dry cleaner only takes cash. Oh, but should. we love those guys, and they're around the corner. Oh, all right. Anyway, TMI, but... <laughs> <all right. laughs> So I left it in there for two days, and I couldn't help but thinking at the end of every day, you know they're gonna do one of those sales mm-hmm. and get rid of all the shirts, ah, you know, yeah. that
1: I actually want or need. See, but see, see, New York so City, stupid. New York City really <laughs> encapsulates the nature of trade-offs that are the fundamental thing that the law is about. Sure. But also, right, like, like, you know, there's not in New York City you never have your cake and eat it too, right? Shopping oh. for apartments, right? Choosing where to go to dinner, everything is a trade-off. Yeah. Uh, you know, your dry cleaner as well, right? Like, you're willing to go to the trouble of getting cash out because Other reasons that, and so New New York just pushes these buttons and trains you to be a a trade-off artist. What is it? Do
0: you think that's the sort of legal structure of this place, or is it because it's so dense here? Like I've I've never felt as busy until when I've got here. I've been here for nearly twenty years, and it feels I have to schedule. Like I have a calendar invite Mm -hmm. when I want to meet with my. I'm embarrassed to say this. It's a camera in here, and I'm just (laughs) thinking about what am I saying. But we have to schedule out. When we're going to meet. I don't think life was like that before. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was much younger right. before. Life is busy in general. Life is busy. Is that a thing? Life
1: is busy. Life is expensive. And It's just right. a small place. But, mm-hmm.
0: well, Manhattan is. Yeah. And, I mean, it kills me if someone says, you want to come downtown? I'm like, well, right. not really.
1: Right. So, so all, all, see, see, and th- this is how important I found coming onto the show to get to talk to you. Yeah, all right. Uh, no, you I, I love. Not I lo- with you. I love yeah. this neighborhood. We're trying. To, I'm, I'm trying to convince my wife we should move here. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Move up here. Move up here. Uh, yeah. You'll yeah. have to have me on every week then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, could do, uh, we could. But, do that. Uh, but right. So, so you know, I mean, and but like this actually is another one of these fascinating problems that yeah. people have, right? So, so, so throughout the United States, yeah. uh, people are constantly making choices to move to the suburbs. Mm. Less so now than they used to, right? But, you know, the idea is, like, you know, you get a little older, you get married, you have some kids, move to the suburbs, right? Now you have all of this space, right? So much closet space, that giant TV, all of these sorts of things. It turns out people adapt to the space almost immediately. Within six months, your bigger closet gives you no greater pleasure.
0: That's a good point, yeah. But
1: what have you traded off for all that space? A much longer commute. It turns out, again, we know this from the hedonic psychology studies. Commuting in traffic is one of the worst things people do. Oh my god! It is. It is, and, and it, it drives it is, you crazy. And it is bad every day. Yeah. Right? And so in this, in the in like, in, in like, you move to the suburbs, you get a big closet. Yeah. But by month six, your big closet feels just as small as your old closet because you filled it with crap. Um, but um, your commute is just. Day after day of and so this is and 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 so this is one of the ways in which people make bad choices, right? And we know that now. We can tell Mm. that they've made a bad choice because they report, "Yeah, I'm not any happier with my house, uh, but I'm much less happy with my commute." I
0: want to dig into that really quick uh, because I left the city for a bit and was doing, you know, that work. I was advising a bunch of mayors in the Midwest Mm -hmm. and. I drove a really tiny car. I hated sitting in it all day because I couldn't recline the seat back. I literally just lean back away from the mic. But we got to take a quick... This is going great. We usually take a break and play a song, but um, I'm just going to um, power through that really quick. You're listening to WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. And we're right back. <laughs> <laughs> Splendid. <laughs> no, I mean, usually it's a whole, you know, five minutes or so, but... Um, no, you're right. I think that is a big trade-off. It's funny you say that. Uh, I think when I was out of here, I think my first place, uh, it was like three bedrooms, had two fireplaces. Mm-hmm. I live in a one-bedroom now. Right. It, it's cost more than uh, my old house. <laughs> right. And uh, when I first got here, it felt like a box. I remember people coming over. We have a tiny porch and a grill, and people were like, oh, this is nice. This is so nice. I'm like, uh eh. I'm kind of like, you know, j- you know, embarrassed and just happy to be getting along <laughs> right. here. But... I would say, you know, even when I'm moving around the city, I'm like, I think we pay a people mm-hmm. premium to be here because you just meet extraordinary people everywhere on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's nothing to meet them. It gets to the point where, you know, you see a, a movie star and it's you kind of it's sort of New Yorky not to bother them because like, you, you know, well, they're just them right. and I'm me. <sighs> like, what am I going to do? They right. just get in the coffee. Screw them. Right. Um, so I do like that mm-hmm. culturally. Um. And, you know, yeah, Harlem is the same size as Cleveland, right? and it's just one neighborhood. You know, right. people come to me all the time, like, I want to go to the borough of Harlem. Who are not here? I'm like, it's not a borough. It's just <laughs> one neighborhood uptown. Right. So that's a thing. I think I am generally happy here per the people, but I totally get why people are not happy here. Mm-hmm. I meet so many people who cycle through New York. One of my best friends who convinced me to be here worked here with Estee Lauder forever. We, you know... Traveled together, went to school together, etc. And she sort of, when she hit 40, mm-hmm. sort of, like, I have to get out. Right. And she moved to Savannah, Georgia. Oh, good. Much different place. Close to my hometown. Good looking place. Yeah. And she's teaching down there now, marketing, but she's just like, I, I gotta get out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how are you, the, the New Yorker of us all, right. gonna leave? And she's like, I just, I gotta cut my hair off and mm-hmm. get out yeah. of here.
1: Well, so New York pushes on this, right? We were talking about the aspirations with respect to wealth, yeah. right? New York does that in so many ways, right? Like, like, like no matter what your interest, no matter what you're doing, right? Yeah. There's, right? Like, and this is the great thing about New York, that it is pushing in so many ways. This is yeah. why New York is such a, a brilliant and successful and vibrant city. But it always means it's easy to spot the people just ahead of you. Uh, it in, is. Professionally, socially, <laughs> whatever it is, like, you know, in dress, in, you know, wine collection, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, whatever in, it is. They what, have what, a bigger wine. Cellar, right? whatever yeah. it is that you're doing, it's really easy to spot the people we here who are six places for just wine, ahead right? of, of you, right? Yeah. Uh, right. And so. Um, and, and, and New York really, I think, rubs that in. Uh, and so, so, right. It put, and I think, you know, very often pushes us to make, uh, you know, some not very good choices about our lives. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and requires us to, to think a little bit more deeply about, you know, does this make me happy? Right. Yeah. You know, like, you're not know, sure I could move to, you know, deepest, darkest Brooklyn, but then I'm not going to be able to walk to work. And is, is that a trade-off I want to make? Look, maybe it is. Right. right? But, but like really not trying to, I wanna make, and yeah, so, Right. I, Look, the three trains right by my place. It's, yeah, I don't know. I don't so, move, so right. But yeah. So but but yeah. like you know, it's. I think this is one of the things that, that that my colleagues and I have found that by studying happiness like this, we've we've actually gotten better at introspecting about our own lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're asking, does this make me happier? Uh, do I, do I feel like I'm better off, um, because of this or, mm. you know, have I already adapted adaptation is such a big key here, right? Sure. Right. You get this little bump of pleasure. You get this little, you know, dip of, 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 of sadness. Um, but how long does it last and, and what does it cost to get it? Uh, And being a little more attentive to uh, to those sorts of questions, I think, has, um, has, you know, I think for the three of us (laughs) made our lives
0: better. No, yeah, totally. And so it's been a bit therapeutic where you've I mean, you've had to sort of do a deep dive on it. Yeah, I guess uh, I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, it just makes me think about people more broadly. And if they're asking themselves those questions about what they really want out of life. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when I got here, I was thinking about what do I really want out of life? Am I too scared to sort of go after it? I was in, you know, financial technology. So like, are you gonna right. come to the center of finance and try to build a software company that you already that you always wanted to build, and maybe fail doing it, right. or are you gonna like look back at ninety mm-hmm. and go, you know, I could have, I was almost there, and be one of those guys who tells a story from far, far away land? Right. Um, and are you gonna come there for less space, et cetera, et cetera? So yeah, and it's again, it's not for everybody. I meet people all the time. I feel like deliberately try to trash New York, like I could never, right. I could never be in New York. It's like you should come to New York and see. Right. I think
1: once you're there, you you fall in love with it. But I think you're but yeah. even the question you were asking yourself, right? What do I want out of life? I, I worry again that check, this yeah. is like too hard of a question. Oh, okay. Right. I, I get nervous that, you know, like like when when people try to think about hard questions, sure, they usually substitute them with easier questions. Mm. And the easy questions and the hard questions often aren't that well aligned, mm. right? So so when I asked you earlier, like how is your life going these days, right? You thought about a lot of big ticket items like you know, job, relationship, right? Family, yeah, I tagged those last health. two numbers
0: of stuff I didn't have yet. Right? But you, you didn't. Like, in... if I got elected, I would
1: be like six right. instead of five. Right. But you didn't include, like, when you know, got... how much am I, you know, like, what's my commute like? Because you just, it never occurred to you to think, like, what's my commute like is really a significant part of how happy I am right now. It and is, so, yeah. so, one of the things I, you know, that I think this, this research encourages us to do yeah. is to try to ask narrower questions that humans can actually answer. Right the law, in attempting to monetize like health states, mm-hmm. privacy, um, any number of you know environmental goods, yeah. tries to get people to put numbers on things like yeah. it will actually ask people how much money would you be willing to pay to save the lives of two hundred birds right and so so they 'll mm-hmm. come up with some number. you can imagine sure. the number that you would pay right presumably some amount of money right It turns out if you ask them. The same question, except you make it 2,000 birds, Mm. they say the same number. Oh, really? And if you ask them 200,000 birds, they say the same number. Why? Because people just don't know how to value birds. No, yeah, you're right. This is not a thing that, like, brains are well adapted to answering. So you're pushing me onto this sort of
0: theory I have in the work that I used to do in, in the early 2000s. So I spent the majority of my career during the 2000s really on a plane. (laughs) <laughs> so I sort of hated the commute Sure. Getting to the airports, whatever the airport was And actually being in it Like I, I never mind being in a place I love everywhere and the people from everywhere I just hate going right. anywhere I don't want to go anywhere I don't want to walk over here, it's five blocks away Classic But yeah. <laughs> But so Sunday to Thursday I was on a plane, work from home Friday That was my life as a consultant And it sort of killed me, killed some relationships You know, standard stuff In um, the last 10 years have been Well, as hectic, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, what I saw, sort of what brought me to this work around even the title of the show, Inclusionism, and thinking about economics, thinking about data, thinking about automation, thinking about humanity, is towards the middle of the 2000s, end of the 2000s, I moved away from working on mechanical products to working on business processes. And I would see us automate away the way we make decisions. So I would come to your place of work, map out, you know, like what does Chris do every day? Let's put it in boxes and vectors, step by step by step. Okay. And then we look at it from an efficiency standpoint and say, can we reduce, 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 make it more effective, make it more efficient, make it more, primarily what we're trying to do is make it more productive, mm-hmm. right? So it generates more revenues. It is more productive. Revenues are productivity, at least from the standpoint that we cared about it. And at the point that we get productive enough, we can possibly remove Chris from the equation, maybe replace him with some younger person whipping and snapping for a lower fee. And the deal is we pay them the same amount, Mm -hmm. right? And it it makes me think about what you're saying about saving 200 birds versus 2,000 birds and folks wouldn't normally suggest the same number. What I would start to argue uh, in more academic spaces uh, and corporate spaces is that because the wages that are distributed by owners and managers of institutions are subjective per that manager. Mm-hmm. It's like at any time that we make our own process more efficient, they're never going to say, I'm going to pay more for that. Mm-hmm. Normally, if you cut some slack, you pat yourself on the back with a bonus, not necessarily a bad thing, but what we, if that becomes the, the sort of ethos of our daily toiling and it's pervading our industry or every industry... Over time, we'll get really good at that, Mm -hmm. and we start to bring down the cost to create productivity. And at some point, we'll get to a place where we've locked people out of the process of Mm -hmm. productivity because the only people who will own productivity are the people who either own products or own companies outright. And I got into an argument, this was years ago, with a bunch of labor leaders, a bunch of union guys. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, look, man, um, you're never going to get wages where you want them to. Because you can't make an argument to people, managers or top executives, that you should just increase wages just because. Because they're going to see themselves as reducing um, the inputs to to productivity. And I was like, we don't have at an individual level Mm -hmm. a good gauge of risk and value. I was like, I don't think we ever will. Mm -hmm. And we put all that... On the individual that we hire like I'm hiring you Chris I need you to figure out how much this is worth Mm -hmm. and how much risk we're willing to take on to make this thing and you know you've got free reign over all these people so figure it out but be under this budget number we'll write you a nice bonus for it and you're gonna do your job you know which again ain't a bad thing and so I think we're in a radically new the reason I really enjoyed your book is because of how it talked about our inability to gauge that risk. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of like the, the, the latter half of it talked a lot about, uh, you know, case law and settlements, Mm -hmm. but, um, but, but that, but that, that troubles me more. Like what I just talked about briefly, it troubles me more than anything else on the planet Mm -hmm. because I'm constantly, as again, the engineer economist guy, I'm thinking about the distribution Mm -hmm. of value Mm -hmm. and, I don't think that we have a way in place to distribute it well, and it's not just an uh, economic problem; it's really a legal problem. Like, mm-hmm. how do we codify and securitize the value that we want to distribute? Mm-hmm. And so we need, well, we need lawyers at the table, right. number one. So, I don't know that's the that's my core. When we talk about objectives, mm-hmm. the reason I am not happy, the reason I'm at a five out of seven. <laughs> right. It's because I don't feel like I've cracked that code. I mean, I think I have some interesting approaches, too. I do. Right. But, but I don't think that uh, I figured out a way to communicate it well to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I'm frustrated. Like, right. my normal, my daily sentiment when I wake up is um, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated all day. I'm all frustrated. day. I'm frustrated brushing my teeth. I'm frustrated going to bed. I'm, I'm frustrated, man. All right. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you all tapped into that. Um So, in cases where individuals think they've been wronged mm-hmm. or or undervalued or that their happiness has been uh you know affected uh, I think some some other interesting things that are in the book is how um how the how law can be used to build settlements mm-hmm. and and you know, and it asks the question, if this renders adequate happiness.
1: Am I am I going? Am I thinking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so so yeah. in in so many cases, what we're trying to figure out is, um, you know, how to right. So so the law very often is reliant on cash. Sure. Right. right. You right. know, when 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 so you get yeah. when you know when you get hit by a bus, sure. you know, God forbid, um, you know, yeah. the law doesn't, you know, give you a new arm. It tries to give you cash that represents the value of that arm. Uh, yeah. and so, um, So one of the things we want to do in the book is we want to be able to use hedonic psychology and measures of of happiness to try to figure out uh, how bad off people's lives are when they suffer from these various negative health consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to do the same thing with respect to understanding how prison affects people. So in the criminal law context. Right. So so so. Prison is—it turns out really fascinating uh, and really scary from uh, from, a, from a from a happiness point of view. Um, so, so the research seems to suggest that many people adapt pretty quickly to being in prison. Yes, uh, and so, so what it, yeah. that means is, for example, that uh, the first six months or a year are pretty awful, mm-hmm. expectedly so. Um, but then they tend to get better for most most people who are in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that tends to mean that a longer prison sentence isn't necessarily twice as bad as one that is half that length. Yeah, they are. Twenty years is not twice as bad as ten years, right? So so we're probably not doing a good job of of, of of gauging prison sentences that way. Here's the other important thing though, and this is I think in many respects much more important. Mm. One of the things we learn is that um, Prison has an enormous number of negative health consequences uh, and mental health consequences on people who spend time there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so um, after being released from prison, people are much less likely to be employed. They lose social ties. Uh, They they suffer from mental health problems and the like at much higher rates than they otherwise would have. And, again, all of those things are, are not based on, like, how long they spent in prison. Yeah. That's just, like, once you're in, you get this, like, bunch of terrible outcomes. Yeah. And so it's another way of thinking about, like, like, the law is trying to, like, say that, like, you know, stealing a car is not as bad as, you know, killing a person yeah. or something like that. All right. Um, and so it does that by changing prison sentence length. Sure. And what we're seeing is that that's not working. Right. Um, because right. it's 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 giving this enormous hedonic cost to everyone who's in prison, at, you know, kind of irrespective of the the magnitude of, of, of the crime that they've been convicted of.
0: Yeah, I think the, well, the most interesting thing there, at least to me, is I think the law per the legislators, not necessarily the lawyers and the judges who are distributing it and arguing about it is. If I may, I mean, because it, you know, it varies place to place. We live in a really interesting federation that tries a lot of different things out. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think a lot of the laws are written to satisfy not necessarily the subject of of the law, but the, the onlookers and how they feel right. about, you know, say murder versus stealing a car versus shoplifting. And um, yeah, so those are much, much bigger numbers about what people feel like It's another interesting abstract concept, you know, justice is in play. And what do people feel is just, which is, again, a a cultural But at least, you know, whatever
1: justice means, it means that, like... More heinous crimes should receive more punishment than less heinous crimes, and what, is we're what, su- saying, what we're what we're suggesting yeah. is like we're not getting that, right? 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 What we're getting is a whole bunch of punishment, enormous amounts of punishment, and it's expensive. Even it's incredibly expensive, <laughs> um, even for relatively unheinous crimes. Yeah. Right. Even for relatively minor things like yeah. you know. A, a year in prison, two years in prison for shoplifting uh, or, or theft or drug crimes, these sorts of things. Right. The, you know, the, the hedonic toll on, on, on people who spend time in prison is enormous. Yeah. And so if, if, if justice means, you know, compare, you know, heinousness and sentence, then we we're the law is really bad at it. We're still missing the mark. Right. The the law is really bad at it to enormous human cost. Yeah. I think, Now I'm glad you brought
0: that up because I think some of the work there is again, um, storytelling Mm -hmm. Um, I had another guest here a while ago and she was rambling off a bunch of stats and at the end she said you know you will not um, win people over with truths you have to figure out how to tell a story about it, and yeah, I think we're not telling enough stories about the human effects of punishment in general, right. not necessarily just jail. I know here in this state, we're getting ready to deal with a bunch of transformation in marijuana laws, for instance, mm-hmm. and a lot of people's records, similar to I think what just happened in Illinois, will be expunged. And then, you know, the question becomes, what, you know, what does that mean for the people who have these sort of long-term mm-hmm. effects, this sort of, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, from whatever the old laws were? Because I, as you were speaking, I was trying to find the graphic in the book, but there is this really interesting graphic where you show this plateau of when people initially come into prison, mm-hmm. then they get used to it, and their happiness goes down, right. and then it gradually ticks back up. But even after they're out the next plateau is significantly less than the initial plateau and sort of, they're always walking around with some sort of post-traumatic stress, whether they manage it well or not. And it makes me think about also, you know, people who've, you know, people have been in the military or people have been in other traumatic situations. Um, And so it's it's difficult to sort of, uh, I guess, from an economic standpoint, but this ties right back into, you know, legal issues make those folks whole again. Right.
1: And it's just it so hard to, to the see, objective. right? I mean, so, so, you know, I think, you know, the, okay. the law over the course of, you know, 200 years has paid a lot of attention to physical injury yeah. and not just law, but society, Well, there's a story there. You know, if you lose an arm, if you lose a leg, right? We can see an injury, sure, and we can we can think about how to compensate you for it. Yeah, Um, and and medicine is the same way. Medicine has spent a lot of time paying attention to physical injury. Yeah. Um, and neither the law, nor medicine, nor society has spent much time thinking about mental health. Yeah. Uh, and and one of the major lessons from, from the hedonic psychology literature hmm. is that mental health is at least as important, if not more important, than physical health. Sure. Um, you know, that that... You know, depression and other sorts of uh, and anxiety disorders are, I mean, again, not surprisingly, almost tautologically. Yeah. Right. Massive reductions in happiness. Uh, and so um, and, and, and as a society, we do we do like, strikingly little uh, to address those sorts of concerns. I
0: feel like it's just now a conversation. Um, you know, when we talk about this sort of this new, I don't know, revolution of individualization of who people are and the micro traumas that come along with their mm-hmm. identities. Right. Um, like... Uh, like, I'm just, you know, like, you can grow a mustache. I'm jealous that I can't, so I'm going to leave here and be, you know, PO'd about it. No, but but no, on a more serious note, I mean, everything is... It's uh, sort of going there now. You know, this new Joker movie, like, mm-hmm. the most popular movie in the country right now, even though people talk about what it really means. It's, at least from my POV, it's, it's about mental illness. mm mm-hmm. And the neglect from mental illness, um, I think um, you know the reemergence of people talking about PTSD in non-militaristic situations. Mm-hmm. You know that's a new opportunity, um, and so we're in a, n- a new place. But I think it's because, and this is a, r- a real problem. And hopefully, in this data-driven world, it doesn't take so long to notice things. This whole century or the past 19 years, which is weird saying, you know, in three months we'll be in a new decade. That's crazy. Um, But as we will, we've seen depression spike about 25% from where it was Mm -hmm. and suicide on par with it across different gender and ethnic and economic groups. People just ain't happy, Um, especially younger people. People a day younger than me, apparently they're just, they're, they're not getting married. They're not having sex. They're not doing... Mm-hmm. Stuff that our parents did, I didn't think my parents were happy, but apparently they were having a good go, you right. know, drinking whiskey and driving and smoking cigarettes with kids without seatbelts. We were just sliding around in the back, you know, right. driving with roller skates on. Whatever they were doing, it was good.
1: Yeah, well, I think we've gotten to a point of increasing uncertainty, mm-hmm. uh, financial uncertainty, professional uncertainty, social uncertainty. Yeah. And, and it, one of the things that seems to really give people... Um, Serious anxiety, serious concern It's just like uncertainty about what's next The
0: markets definitely uh, act like that And so, yeah.
1: right And so, so you a... know, like, like a lot of the A lot of the, the negative hedonic cost of, of, of poverty Sure Is, is like, like, you know most like a lot of it, anyway. And I would yeah. say most of it. A lot of it is just like if a small thing goes badly for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the street, right? Everything like my relationships with my family and friends, sure. My job, like, and so it's 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 not the kind of absolute absence of you know things, right? You know, many people have things uh, in the United States, but yeah, they yeah, know that stuff, those yeah. things can be taken away from them. Yeah. very quickly, right? This is the difference between relatively poor people in the United States sure. and relatively poor people in Scandinavian countries. Sure. Right there, there's a very strong social safety network, uh, that means that, you know, if something goes bad to you, bad for you, if you are ill, if yeah. you get an accident, if you lose your job, there's a safety net. You're still going to get uh, your eyes checked.
0: You're still going to be able to learn as much as you want. You're still right. going to have a place to stay.
1: And so we, in the United States, we've, we've yeah. been unwilling to do that for the most part. we've gotten worse at it over Man, the course of God. the past 40 years. Uh, and so, and I think by by withdrawing the safety net, yeah, you know, people take fewer risks, right? They they engage less with the the sorts of things that they might want to do. We with start their less passions. companies as a um, generation, right? So I think, I, you know, yeah. and 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 they just, you know, it's a it's a really scary time for a lot of people, knowing that you know entirely outside of their control, you know, they get an illness, they get hit, you know, in an automobile accident, then you know. They're they're bankrupt. They, they're, no yeah, they're so many, yeah. and this
0: is just you know. I, they're waiting to have kids. Everyone's like thirty five having kids. I remember when my mm-hmm. parents were thirty five. I thought they were old people mm-hmm. um, at that age. Right. But uh, no, I mean you're right. I think uh, being this previous sort of technological, you know, utopian guy thinking there was a a fix for every problem. Again, m- more than ten years ago, I, I remember the transition in the. You know, pre-politics, just policy advisory, sort Mm -hmm. of manipulating the law or at least endeavoring to to see if we can incentivize the distribution of other things. I wasn't thinking about happiness, per se, because I used to think about it as this more abstract thing. But you have definitely got me trending more on, you know, happiness in general. I think we were thinking more about agency and equity Mm -hmm. and then those being derivatives of happiness I, you know, as I move around and not only our district, but the country, I got to go to Ohio next week to mm-hmm. argue with a bunch of people about energy companies. Mm-hmm. And we're talking to people about that. They feel like they have no agency over, you know, they, they're saying one thing as a community mm-hmm. You're in different cities, white, black, you name it across the state about how they want stuff to be ran and like nothing's getting done. Right. And so there's this hopelessness that sets in. I think that's a play too. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few actors that, all of us see that are sort of seem to be omni powerful. Uh, from a corporate standpoint and a political standpoint, mm-hmm. and it feels like no matter how loud we yell, we like march till our feet bleed, and we make new music about it, and nothing changes. Tweet a lot. We tweet a lot. I tweet a lot because I'm like, maybe if I get more followers, more people will listen, but it's that's not happening. There's more people to yell at you. Oh my god, that <laughs> happens too. Um, oh
1: my god, that happens. You make me think about. It. I don't want to follow that. me on Twitter. Yeah, right. right. That's the thing. <laughs> if you want to yell at me, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, he <laughs> at Scroll like on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah.
0: But um, I think, I think there's, this, this, there's this more moral conversation uh, to be had. And I think uh, looking at the uh, interaction of law and happiness helps us have that conversation. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've gotten too far away from what is ethically sound to just satisfy uh, our distributive needs. And, uh, and that's fine. It happened, I think, but now it's time to sort of correct it. I think we'll spend right. the next 20, 40 years trying to correct it and right. make sure that we are trying to incentivize more, right. more happiness. And, and I, that's you, my hope.
1: I, I, look, yeah. uh, and, and, and mine as well. Right. But look, if, if, if you think that happiness means mm. more money, right. and, and if your only conception of, of, of human welfare is more money, right. then you can never have enough. Right. right, and we've then, been taught that. Though. I feel like right. some of that has been distributed to us here. Mm-hmm. So, so, right. so, it's, We're so it it, it makes perfect sense from that perspective yeah. to 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 have a tax cut that goes disproportionately to the already wealthy. Right, because if you give them a hundred million dollars, clearly they're better off. Sure, right, um, because they have more money, and so you Damn, know they island. they must be better off. Yeah. Um, but but happiness allows the happiness research allows us to focus on. Uh, who re- like where we can really make benefits? Where we right. can right like you know if you're if you're six point eight out of out of seven, yeah, right. You know if you you know if you own the island, if you own the helipad, if you own the right yeah. all the things. If you're like bumping up, if like you're basically your life is going pretty darn well, then we know you know maybe it's time to, to use our distributional powers in the law, in society and politics to, to help out the people who are who are less certain for whom things are going less well.
0: Agreed no, I agree a thousand percent. Um, Chris, I feel like we've only like touched the tip of the iceberg. I hope you'll come back and we can talk more. I wanted to talk more about the new papers that you all are publishing and just about uh, happiness and how we incentivize it in general. But, um, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for, for taking time. the time. To read the book and talk about it. With thanks me. for coming up. Maybe you all will be our neighbors soon. There's some great places up here on 149. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. So Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, Folks, you can check out uh, more uh, from the show at inclusionism.org. Uh, and I saw that a few calls came in, but be sure to just email us um, at the website, and, um, and, w- and we'll try to forward stuff on to Chris and c- keep the conversation going. So I'd be delighted. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.